Welcome to the Rapid Response RN Podcast, helping you keep your finger on the pulse of your patient's condition with real-life stories from the front lines of nursing. This podcast can help you sharpen your assessment skills, improve your ability to recognize the signs and symptoms of your patient's decline, be inspired to speak up and advocate, and know how to jump into action to promote the best outcome for your patients. Hey, everybody. I'm your host, Sarah Lorenzini, a rapid response nurse and educator who loves telling stories to teach critical thinking. On today's episode, we're going to talk about an arrhythmia that is very near and dear to my heart. All pun intended. Today, we're talking about supraventricular tachycardia, which I have treated hundreds of times in my patients, but dealt with even more times than that personally. Yep, you heard me right. I have, or had, SVT. About five years ago, I finally agreed to get an ablation, and thank God I haven't had any episodes since then. We will talk more about my personal experience later and this exciting rapid response call, but first, a little announcement. I have started an Instagram account for the podcast. So much of what we talk about really needs a visual to go alongside it, so after many, many requests, I finally gave in and just made one. My plan is to supplement the podcast with videos and shareable educational resources to support you and your professional development as a nurse. I will also post every time a new episode drops so you don't have to keep checking back on your podcast app. So if you would like to stay updated and have access to all these visual aids, come follow me at the rapid response RN on Instagram. Now, let's dive into this rapid response call. So I arrive at the patient's bedside and find a 40-ish-year-old male who's awake and alert, and aside from the scared look in his eyes, he looks pretty darn stable. I'm going to call him Vince for this episode, but that was not his name. No HIPAA violations on this podcast. So Vince's skin is pink, warm, dry. He's able to converse with us. He's just a little tachypnic, like in the 30s. The nurse tells me that Telly just called her and said his heart rate is 200. 200? I'm thinking, this guy, wow, he's compensating pretty well. But I walk over, I feel his radio pulse, and it just felt like a vibrating thread. I could never have counted that. So I throw him on the defibrillator, not to shock him, just to get a quick look at the rhythm for myself, and sure enough, 200 beats per minute. He's becoming visibly more distressed by the minute, probably a combination of his heart racing out of his chest and the growing number of people in the room and the various interdisciplinary team members who are arriving to, you know, help him. And the fact that I just attached him to a defibrillator. Like all those things might be a little anxiety inducing. So I held his hand. I made him look at me and not the monitor or the 10 people in the room. And I said, Vince, your heart is just racing. And I know what that feels like. I actually have the same thing. And sometimes it can be a little scary, but it is treatable. I've got you. We're going to fix this. I proceeded to try and talk him through some bagel maneuvers as I was placing a new IV in his antecubital. We tried bearing down, coughing, blowing through a syringe. Nothing worked. By that time, the physician had arrived and ordered some adenosine. I said, okay, Vince, I'm going to be giving you a medication called adenosine. It helps fix the electrical part of your heart. And when I give it, you may feel a little pressure in your chest or lightheadedness. That's actually to be expected. And that's kind of how you know it's working. I've given it hundreds of times to other patients and it either works or it doesn't, but I've never seen it harm anyone. So I'm going to be right here next to you the whole time. Side note, notice that I didn't say, 
I'm going to give you a drug to stop your heart. While that may be a true statement about adenosine and what it does to the body, nobody will respond well to that warning. Instead, I use words like slow down or fix the fast rhythm, or if you really got to say it, reboot the electrical system of your heart. But don't say stop. Please don't tell your patient that you're going to stop their heart. Not helpful. Moving on. So I drew up the first six milligrams of adenosine and attached it to the stopcock with a 10 ml flush ready to power flush it in. With the physician, respiratory therapist, and a crash cart at the bedside, I hit the print button on the defibrillator. I slammed the adenosine, followed by the flush, and I've, I've got you, Vince. We all stared at the monitor as our sphincters tightened in anticipation of the worst case scenario while we watched his fast rhythm slow to a nice five seconds of asystole. And then it sped right back up again to 200. From the printed strip, we confirmed that it wasn't AFib or another rhythm that might need a different treatment. This was definitely SVT. No P waves, regular, and so, so fast. At this point, Vince was really freaking out. I mean, we gave the drug. He felt all the scariness of his heart stopping, and it didn't work. So now what? The doctor ordered a repeat of 12 milligrams, which I had already drawn up because, in my experience, 6 doesn't usually work. As of today, ACLS still recommends starting with 6 milligrams as the first dose. And if unsuccessful, repeating the adenosine with a double dose for round 2. So, I explained to Vince that we need to do the same thing. Again. With double the dose. He's trying to look a little paler. So, I cycled his blood pressure one more time before I administered the 12 milligrams of adenosine. It was 92 or 50. Okay. So, the doc says, let's just do it. I slam the second dose and deja vu, his heart slows to asystole and then races right back up to 200 beats a minute. Poor guy. I mean, adenosine sucks, but it's worth it if it works. It just didn't. I expected him to be like full-blown freak out at this point, but he wasn't. And in fact, now he's starting to get a little clammy and drowsy. So I cycled his blood pressure again and it was 70 over 40. I said, Doc, we got a cardiovert. I don't have enough blood pressure for sedation. He's crashing. Fortunately, the defib pads were already on him, so I flipped the defibrillator into synchronized cardioversion mode. At this point, Vince isn't responding to me at all. But I still said to him, Vince, I'm so sorry. This is going to hurt, but it's going to save your life, my friend. And I said, all right, guys, let's go ahead and charge the defibrillator to 120 joules. We're going to cardiovert. All right, everyone clear? As I scanned the room to make sure no one was touching the patient. Shocking. Shock delivered. The energy jolts through his body and his chest came up off the bed. We all looked at the monitor. Boop. 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 <sighs> Normal sinus rhythm. Heart rate of 95. We recycled a blood pressure. His blood pressure is improving. He starts waking up. And ever in the room, you can just feel, took a big sigh of relief. <sighs> we fixed him. For now. But now the question is, why did he go into SVT in the first place? Because we're going to have to address that too. So let me just summarize what happened because it all happened so very fast. And then we'll discuss the pathophysiology of SVT and its treatment. So uh, Vince's heart started racing at 200 beats per minute. 
Initially, he was compensating pretty well by breathing a little faster, but he was still perfusing all of his organs, awake and alert, talking to us with a stable blood pressure. So we tried the least invasive intervention first, vagal maneuvers, all of them, but to no avail. Then pharmacological interventions. We gave adenosine six milligrams followed by 12 milligrams, which also did not convert him. There are other (laughs) pharmaceutical options, but when he became unresponsive and hypotensive, there was no time for more drugs. He needed to be cardioverted. So we delivered a synchronized shock and he converted back into sinus rhythm. Yay. Now let's discuss SVT. Honestly, we've made it a little confusing for folks new to nursing because SVT is an abbreviation for supraventricular tachycardia. So supraventricular or above the ventricles and tachycardia or heart rate greater than 100 beats per minute. But there are a lot of rhythms that originate above the ventricles that are fast that would fall into that category. Like sinus tachycardia is a supraventricular tachycardia. Atrial fibrillation and atrial flutter are supraventricular. And now, hang on for the acronym overload, SNRT, AVRT, AVNRT, MAT, and the list goes on and on are all forms of supraventricular tachycardia. Generally speaking, you know rhythm is supraventricular or originating above the ventricles when the QRS complex is narrow. So all tachycardias with a narrow complex should be called SVT. But for some reason, in practice, you might find nurses and physicians grouping SVTs into three categories. Not because there's actually three categories, but because the treatment often falls under about three category options. So the first is sinus tachycardia, which has a P wave preceding every QRS. This means the sinoatrial node or the pacemaker of the heart is starting the beat like it's supposed to. The SA node is supposed to be in charge. It will respond to stimuli like pain or anxiety or dehydration. So for sinus tachycardia, it's important to treat the source, be it pain medication or anxiety medication or IV fluids or whatever's causing the tachycardia. Then second category would be like an atrial fibrillation, which is an apparent pathway or multiple different pathways that are trying to run the show and sending out electrical impulses from throughout the atrium. So the atrium just end up fibrillating, hence the name, and the ventricles are just randomly responding to some of the signals, but thank God, not all of them. The telltale sign of AFib is being irregularly irregular with absent P waves, since the SA node is being completely overrun by the misbehaving parts of the atrium. They're sending out all their own electrical impulses. So no P waves, just a lot of artifact looking squiggles between the QRS complexes. And the complexes are irregular without any pattern to them because they aren't in alignment with the atrium. AFib is treated with deltaism or amiodarone or metropolol. And then there's SVT which is also a narrow complex tachycardia. It looks pretty regular that you cannot clearly discern P waves because it's so fast, they just get hidden in the other complexes. So 
they are all SVTs, but then we call one of them the regular one without P waves with sudden onset and a rate above 150. We call that one SVT. How confusing, right? I mean, really, SVT is an umbrella term that for some reason people use to describe a specific type of SVT. It would be like if we chose to call the femur leg bone and not its specific name, even though there are four leg bones and they all look very different and they work different. And we call the other leg bones by their specific name, like patella, fibula, tibia. But we just thought the femur should be called leg bone because it falls into the leg bone category. Well, SVT is an SVT, but there are actually several rhythms that could be occurring when we say they've got SVT. And I recognize that an audio platform is not the ideal modality for describing something you identify visually. So I would highly recommend pulling up some photos of different types of SVT to help you differentiate. Uh, the blog Life in the Fast Lane, I would highly recommend. It really breaks down very well with great visuals. Um, all the stuff we're talking about today with diagrams. So if you wanted to pull them up, um, highly recommended. So now that we know we are talking about a narrow complex tachycardia that is regular and doesn't have P waves, rather than saying it's an AVRT or an AVNRT or any other acronym, I'll just be referring to all of these non-AFib, non-A-flutter, non-sinus tachycardia tachycardias as SVT. So SVT usually is sudden onset, like the patient's rhythm was normal and now without warning, it just flips into tachycardia. Usually sinus tachycardia is more of like a gradual onset and it's associated with some sort of stimulus like increasing pain or stress or dehydration. And like I said, if it's a physiological response to a stressor, then fix the stressor, treat the pain, give the anti-anxiety med, bolus some fluids, don't jump straight to a cardiac rate limiting drug because that could make things worse. But SVT seemingly comes without warning and is almost like just flipping a switch. SVT can be an indicator that something else is up, but it can also be pretty benign. The kind of SVT that I had just randomly occurs to some young, healthy people. I would be just chilling in a chair and the next thing you know, boom, my heart starts racing at 220 beats a minute. I did find that being dehydrated and having caffeine would most definitely send me into an episode of SVT. So I had to learn how to survive on night shift without caffeine and somehow stay hydrated. Then when I got pregnant, it got really bad, happening a few times a month. Then my second pregnancy, it was like every single week. By the time I hit my 30s, even when I wasn't pregnant, I started having an episode a few times a week. And I just got really good at bearing down to convert out. But a couple times I stayed in it for over an hour and I just couldn't convert. I was really close to getting adenosine, like in the ER, IV in place, adenosine drawn up, like that kind of close. But I had seen my patient's reactions to adenosine and I did not want to see what it felt like. So literally one time my blood pressure was 80 over 40 and I was still refusing it. I tried one last time to bear down and cough while simultaneously massaging my carotid and I finally converted. Thank goodness. But by that time I had had enough and I finally gave in and got an ablation. I wish I would have done it sooner. It has absolutely improved my quality of life. Imagine trying to take care of a patient when 
all of a sudden, you can feel your heart just start racing and your neck feels like it's vibrating out of your chest. <clears throat> then your vision starts to get a little blurry and you have to you know, play it cool because from the outside, no one can tell what you're experiencing. They cannot tell that you just flipped into SVT. So you don't want to alarm your patient. Several times I just said, excuse me, I'll be right back. And I would step in the hallway, drop into a squat, bear down, convert, then stand back up, wait for my vision to correct, and then go right back to caring for the patient. <sighs> it sucked. I'm glad those days are over. So that's a great lead into our next segment. Let's talk about vagal maneuvers. Why in the world would taking a big poop convert someone out of an arrhythmia? <laughs> well, the vagus nerve basically runs down the center of your body with branches that wrap through your mouth, your ears, your neck, your heart, your lungs, your digestive organs. The vagus nerve stimulates the parasympathetic nervous system. Remember, the sympathetic nervous system is the fight-or-flight hormones that get you all jacked up and ready for action. But the parasympathetic activation is the balance that allows you to rest and digest. So, the vagus nerve, when stimulated, helps slow the heart rate and drop the blood pressure, opposite of sympathetic stimulation. That is why... When things stimulate the vagus nerve, it helps to convert SVT back to a slower rhythm. Actions that stimulate the vagus nerve include coughing, bearing down, like, like you're trying to have a bowel movement or push a baby out, cold ice to the face, either by dunking the patient's face in a bucket of water or placing bags of ice on their face for like the startled diving reflex. The most common thing that I've seen work is called the Valsalva maneuver. And that's where you have the patient blow as hard as they can for a good 15 to 30 seconds into a pinched straw or give them a syringe and instruct them to try to blow out the plunger from the other side. This induces a temporary slowing of the heart rate that hopefully gives the SA node a chance to get herself together and take control again of the conduction pathway. <clears throat> These are some things that you can direct your patient to do while you're getting ready for the next step. So you can be getting the IV in place, you can get the crash cart close by, get the patient on the monitor, draw up your medications. I've definitely seen it work. In fact, it worked 100% of the time for me, personally, uh, eventually. <laughs> but according to a study called the REVERT trial, the Valsalva maneuver alone is only effective 5-20% to of the time. There's also something called the modified Valsalva maneuver. So y'all, I have never heard of this till now. I literally just learned about it while researching for this podcast. I googled effectiveness of Valsalva maneuver when converting to SVT and I found it. So let me share you, with you what I learned about the modified Valsalva maneuver. <clears throat> so you have to have your patient sitting upright. Just like the regular Valsalva maneuver, they blow through a syringe for 15 seconds. Then you quickly lay their head flat and perform a passive leg raise. So to pull this off effectively, you really need three people. One to coach the patient in the blowing through the syringe part, one at the head of the bed to drop it <clears throat> into position, and one person to grab hold of both legs and lift them in the air. Sounds crazy, right? But here's the crazy part. It works way better than the Valsalva maneuver that I've been doing to help patients for years. When you add in the fun drop you flat and hoist your feet in the air part, the success of the modified Valsalva maneuver is more like 43% in converting SVT back to sinus rhythm. 
and it's way safer and more comfortable for the patient than our other options. So thanks, Appleboom et al. for looking into this one for us. <laughs> I can't wait to try it on my next SVT rapid response call. The final non-pharmacological, non-electrical option for treating SVT is carotid sinus massage. This is another way to stimulate the vagus nerve, but don't go rubbing down the patient's neck. There are definitely risks involved in doing that, so carotid sinus massage should be performed by the provider. All right, so if all of our attempts to calm things down with vagal stimulation fail, and they often do, the next option is drugs. It's very debatable as to the best drug for SVT. The one that I see physicians want to try first is adenosine. Adenosine briefly stops all conduction through the AV node. Like No conduction means no heart squeezing, which means no pulse, which looks like a brief period of asystole on the monitor. But it is really brief. The half-life of adenosine is about 5 to 10 seconds, so it may stop the heart and freak everyone out in the room, but it's just for a few seconds. In order to make it actually reach the heart in time to be effective, you need to give it in a large bore IV in the AC or higher. I use a stopcock so I can rapidly push the adenosine and then flip the stopcock to quickly chase it with the power flush of saline. But imagine what the patient must feel when you do that. It's described in textbooks as, quote, an impending sense of doom, quote, which means they feel like they're going to die. Most patients have told me it hurt in their chest or they felt like the wind was being knocked out of them. I've never had a patient say, that wasn't so bad. They all hate it. The first dose is six milligrams. And if that doesn't work, then you have to do it again with double the dose at 12 milligrams. If that doesn't work, it's time to consider other options. So since we know how terrible adenosine feels, there are other drug options that are just as recommended in the literature but not nearly as exciting as adenosine. You could give calcium channel blockers, usually verapamil, five to 10 milligrams slow IV push, or you can give a beta blocker like metropolol, which is dosed about five milligrams, also administered at a very slow IV push rate. Both verapamil and metropolol doses can be repeated in the f if the first one doesn't work but they don't work as fast as adenosine. So they take about five to 10 minutes to convert the patient's rhythm. Just take a seat and be patient. Both of these rate limiting drugs also affect blood pressure. Therefore, it's important to take the blood pressure before administration and retake it after the dose to make sure it didn't drop your patient's blood pressure too much. One little caveat for drug administration for SVT. There are a few variations of SVT for which nodal blockers like adenosine, calcium channel blockers, beta blockers would be completely contraindicated. The most common of these pre-excitation rhythms is called Wolf-Parkinson-White syndrome. Wolf-Parkinson-White syndrome, or WPW, has a very distinct morphology. It has a shortened PR interval and a delta wave from the pre-excitation of the ventricles through the accessory pathway that they have. Giving nodal blocking agents would actually worsen things for the patient and could throw them into V-fib, which is much worse than SVT. So for patients with WPW, they can safely get procainamide or obviously synchronized cardioversion. In summary, get a good history, look closely at the shape of those sclerosis complexes. WPW is a very rare abnormality, 
but that's why we only push adenosine with the defibrillator pads hooked up to the patient. Because if by chance the patient did have WPW, we didn't know it, and our adenosine administration throws them into V-fib, we can defib immediately without delay. So we've talked about the safest option for all patients, bagel maneuvers. If those don't work, our first line therapy is medication. But if a patient exhibits hemodynamic instability, meaning their blood pressure is dropping, their level of consciousness is waning, they're pale or diaphoretic or become unresponsive, it's time to skip the meds and move on to electricity. Remember, the patients with a pulse, we don't defibrillate them. We synchronize cardiovert. Synchronized cardioversion is where the machine senses the R waves and waits to deliver a shock on an R wave because accidental firing on a T wave could throw the patient into ventricular fibrillation. Again, much worse than SVT. The joules used for synchronized cardioversion honestly depends on the make and model of your defibrillator and physician preference. Some physicians I work with just jump straight to 200 joules to promote first shock success. But 120 joules of the trick for vents. So why did vents start out stable and then become unstable? Well, initially, he was compensating with an increased respiratory rate, and that was able to meet the increased oxygen demands that the racing heart was putting on his lungs. But increased heart rate can only increase cardiac output to a point. Eventually, the heart is just squeezing so fast for so long, cardiac output's gonna drop. Think about how fast 200 squeezes per minute is. That's 3.33 squeezes per second. So there just isn't enough time for the heart to fully fill with blood in diastole before it's fired to squeeze again. So each squeeze just becomes a smaller and smaller amount. With time, stroke volume drops, so cardiac output drops, and blood pressure drops. And that's why trying medications to convert an unstable patient is a bad idea because all those drugs we would give are gonna drop blood pressure. Yes, synchronized cardioversion is risky, but when you weigh out the risk versus the benefits, the risk of not doing anything is greater than the risk of synchronized cardioversion. And luckily, it worked. It converted events back to a normal rate. So, win! Before I wrap up, I want to let you know that I made a little SVT treatment options cheat sheet and posted on Instagram. So if you ever need to refer back to any of the stuff in this podcast, you should be able to easily find it on my Instagram page. And now to summarize, SVT is just an umbrella term for fast rhythms that originate above the ventricles. But for some reason, the ones with sudden onset with regular QRS complexes and hidden P waves, we call SVT. So what's the first thing you should do when you discover your patient's NSVT? Like, let's say Telly calls you and says your patient's heart rate is 180 per minute. I would say the first step is to determine if they're stable or unstable. Like, how is their color? Are they diaphoretic? Are they awake and talking to you or drowsy or unresponsive? What is their blood pressure? And once you eyeball the patient, just call a rapid response. If you determine the patient is unstable, we're gonna be jumping straight to synchronized cardioversion. But if they're compensating for now, let's go least invasive to most invasive. Start by walking your patient through some easy vagal maneuvers. And heck, try out the modified Valsalva with a few buddies. Evidently it works 43% of the time. Your patient may think you're crazy, but they'll thank you if it works and you convert them back to sinus rhythm. 
<clears throat> if all of your vagus nerve stimulation attempts don't do the trick, it's time to choose a medication. Hopefully, while you are coaching your patient through the vagal maneuvers, you are also securing a large bore IV, getting the defibrillator, applying oxygen, drawing up the drugs. Adenosine needs to be pushed fast. And it works fast. And it wears off fast. Thank God. Every other drug we discussed, calcium channel blockers, beta blockers, procainamide, are all pushed slow and take time to take effect. So don't give up if the patient doesn't convert immediately. And if drugs don't work, you can always do synchronized cardioversion. If the patient is stable, you'd want to sedate them first. But if they're decompensating, skip the sedation and jump straight to electricity. Shocking SVT or any rhythm with a pulse always needs to be in synchronized cardioversion mode. The final thing I want you to take away from Vince's story is that when we are dealing with an emergency and your patient's crashing, remember that they are a human and not a machine we're trying to fix. It's easy to get caught up in all the tasks that need to be completed that we forget to explain things to the patient and family. There's still time for the power of human touch. You don't have to talk like you're on a battlefield. Staying calm is important for you, so you can be able to think clearly, and for the patient to see that you've got things under control. For you, this is just another day at the office, but for your patient, they'll remember this day, these moments, for the rest of their life. So keep them informed, involve them in the process, provide comfort and support. To paraphrase Maya Angelou, they may forget your name and everything you did, but they will never forget how you made them feel. Well, that's it for today's episode. If you like this podcast, I'd love to hear from you. You can shoot me an email with questions or comments, and it would mean so much if you could take a moment to write a review on iTunes, as this helps more listeners find this podcast. Thanks for listening, and I hope you learned something that will save a life. Remember, nursing is a team sport, so trust your intuition and don't give up advocating until you are confident you've done what's right by your patient. You've been listening to the Rapid Response RN Podcast. The views and opinions expressed on this show are that of Sarah Lorenzini and hers alone. They are not intended as medical advice and should not take the place of your institution's policies or procedures. Evidence-based practice is ever-changing, and your patient's care should reflect the current best practice. If you want to get in contact with Sarah, you can find her at rapidresponsernpodcast at gmail.com or on the Rapid Response RM Podcast Facebook page, as well as the podcast website, rapidresponsern.com.